I shall ne'er forget the day when Jesus saved me, nor how he shed his blood for all my sin. I shall ne'er forget t'was his own life he gave me, and now he dwells himself as God within. Oh, I can never comprehend his gracious mercy, nor can I e'er forget the love that he bestows. I can only glory in his wondrous presence and revel in abundant grace and love he shows. I shall ne'er forget the day when Jesus saved me, as on the cross my sins he did atone. I shall ne'er forget was his own peace he gave me, and now he walks with me, I'm not alone. Oh, I can never comprehend his gracious mercy, nor can I e'er forget the love that he bestows. I can only glory in his wondrous presence and revel in abundant grace and love he shows. I shall ne'er forget the day when Jesus saved me, when he redeemed my sinful blighted soul. I shall ne'er forget t'was his own joy he gave me, and now, a oh, blessed truth, I am made whole. Oh, I can never comprehend his gracious mercy, nor can I e'er forget the love that he bestows. I can only glory in his wondrous presence and revel in abundant grace and love he shows. Oh man, started singing that song and I thought, I'll not forget that day either. I was in Pennsylvania when he called me. He said he'd gotten saved Sunday night. Praise the Lord. Amen. What well, is good to have a Baptist historian, evangelist Ted Alexander, with us. And he's got quite a few books back there. There's some he didn't bring, though. He said he's all sold out, and I was really disappointed. And it was called American Foundations Laid by Baptists. Those foundations are being destroyed today. But anyway, I hope you'll go by the table, pick up he has some prayer cards there. He's moving to Florida. Uh, I don't know if it's because it's warm and there's alligators down there. But uh, anyway, he's moving to Florida to start a church. I think he's moving in February, March. February 28th, so almost March. But anyway, so pick up a prayer card, and again, uh, go by the book table and avail yourself to the literature and his labor of putting all that stuff together for us to enjoy and to learn where, what kind of heritage we have as Baptists. Uh, it's a forgotten, forgotten subject in a lot of Baptist churches. But anyway, good to have him with us tonight. Brother, you come preach to us.
Amen. Good evening, everybody. It is a blessing to be with you. And uh, that was not very enthusiastic. Amen. How many would rather be here than going over a cliff in a burning bus? Six. Okay. <laughs> all right, preacher. You may need to wake them up before I get up here. Amen. But all right. Well, I want to thank the church, first of all, for all your kindness. Um, you folks have been a blessing to us already. And uh, I don't know if, if you think we can actually eat all the stuff you put in that room or if this is a challenge or uh, if this is for like the next four missionary families, I don't know. But um, you folks are really outdid yourselves in our blessing. Amen. And uh, half that stuff I'm not supposed to have. Amen. But uh, the meal was wonderful. Thank you for those that worked on that as well. I appreciate the fellowship. And um, man, my heart is full tonight. I, I, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, oh man, there's too much I want to say. In light of what took place today, <clears throat> historic event, um, and uh, Brother Danford, actually, I think you folks know that crazy man, amen, um, he contacted me on my way up here, and he said, what a, what a sad day in America, and uh, I, I couldn't watch it, um, and it's, it's not because I'm a Republican, it's because I'm a, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, and I know that evil people... Uh, the people mourn when the, when the wicked rule. And uh, so, anyway, there's just so much that I think is going to happen. But one of the things that uh, is going to happen that a lot of people really aren't, aren't thinking about, a lot I'd like to say, now he, he talked about my family, my wife Jody, my daughter Emma, and my son Luke, and then uh, you'll see on Sunday if you're here, uh, we have uh, three married children there on the slideshow. And uh, we've been on the road for about 25 years, uh, 23 and a half years we spent, he had full-time itinerant evangelism and mission work. And uh, about the last 15 years, I've been uh, really focused um, on Baptist history. And uh, we felt that uh, God was laying it upon our hearts to um, address the issue. And the issue is that we're in an identity crisis stage in our churches where young people are coming up and they're coming of age and they see no value in being a Baptist. They have no idea the great sacrifice of 50 million people that gave their lives for the cause of Christ uh, in scriptural churches down through the ages. Um, they don't know the difference in a Methodist or a Presbyterian or a Baptist, and uh, they have no idea that we're not Protestants. They think one Protestant's as good as another, and uh, they just they haven't been taught. And they're literally trading in theological systems in many cases and have no idea what they're doing. Um, really, and even these so-called Reformed Baptists, which is an oxymoron, uh, Reformation doctrine is not Baptist doctrine. Uh, the Baptists did not commence their existence at the Reformation, but predate the Reformation by 15 centuries. And uh, it, not only that, but what they're trying to say is that all Baptists are inherently Calvinists because the Baptists started in the Reformation and the first ones were Calvinists, which is also uh, completely false. Uh, my wife and a daughter who's not here, uh, we had the privilege of, uh, I hired a scholar in uh, England and he toured us a few years ago because I wanted to be able to articulate and understand the uh, origins of the English Baptists and there's a couple different strains of them and he's an expert, and I mean an absolute world expert, world class, I don't know anybody that is a greater uh, scholar on the subject and uh, he toured us to uh, study the General Baptists. Uh, and uh, this goes to the heart of Calvinism, in case you don't understand that. Uh, the particular Baptists uh, really got going about 1638 and uh, embraced immersion around between 38 and 39. 
and uh, their first confession of faith was the 1644 London Confession, and that was the particular Baptist. They believed in a particular redemption, that God chose people to be saved, and it was just a small number, and the rest He chose to go to hell. And uh, they say, well, because those were the first Baptists, no Baptist ever predated that, which is a lie. Uh, both of those groups went to Holland and uh, were soliciting Anabaptist baptism. They heard that they were immersing, and at the, that time, uh, neither of the groups were immersing. They wanted to embrace immersion, wanted to see what it was all about. But prior to the particular Baptist, to make a long story short, so what you have now is the 1689 London, London Confession. That's what you see all over the Internet. That's what people are touting. And they'll say, well, if you're a Baptist, all Baptists are Calvinists because the ones, the first ones were. Well, uh, John was not a Calvinist, amen? Uh, John the Baptist, yes, that's right. His baptisms are baptism. His authorities are authority. And uh, all the way through. But the general Baptists uh, really got started about 1606. And uh, they were uh, part and parcel of a group uh, of dissenting uh, Puritans. And the other part of the group, they both tra- traveled to Amsterdam, Holland, and the one group became known as the Scrooby Congregation. We know them to be the Pilgrims. And uh, so the General Baptists and the Pilgrims came out of one group of dissenting uh, rebellious Puritans. Amen? And, uh, but, but again, they went and received uh, Anabaptist baptism uh, over in Holland. But, uh, and so whichever way you look at it, it, it is not true that you're supposed to be a Calvinist. Amen? Uh, it, I have a book back on the table, and it's on the Waldenses. I, I won't be able to talk about that much uh, tonight. But one of the chapters in that book deals with the fact, I have no idea why I'm doing this. There may be a Calvinist in the room, I don't know, amen? And uh, I, I, I just feel like this is what the Lord had me to say right now, and it wouldn't shock me if there was, or somebody uh, dabbling on the internet or leaning in that direction. And uh, usually they keep it hidden until they're ready to come out full-blown, you know. But uh, the Waldenses are a group of apostolic believers tucked down in the Koshan Alps, and they existed in, in uh, doctrinal purity and orthodoxy for about 15 centuries from the time of the apostles. Now think about this. Northern Italy tucked down in the valleys. One unvarying theological system they took from the apostles and never took their teaching from any outside group. Okay, So travel ahead 15 centuries. Now the Reformation starts and the reformers are trying to pull the Waldenses into their groups. And they want to bolster their numbers. They don't really care about the Waldenses. The Waldenses wanted protection. They were being slaughtered, annihilated, wiped off the face of the earth. And so they met in Lyons in Strasbourg, and the two different meetings produced uh, a kind of, an, uh, if we can use the word intercourse in a proper fashion, a, uh, a dialogue that went like this. Uh, the Reformers began to introduce to them doctrines, not unbiblical doctrines of staunch predestinarianism and electionism. And when the, when the Waldenses first heard these, they said, that's interesting, we had never heard of such things before. So they stemmed to Christ, their doctrines apostolic, they held it in purity for 15 centuries, and they never heard of staunch predestinarianism or electionism. And they said, and I quote, Otherwise, if these things be true, that those that are born reprobate cannot be regenerated, and those that are born uh, elect cannot ever be damned, uh, then what good are preachings and prayers and exhortations if these things uh, be so? We always thought that Christ died for the sins of the whole world. They did not believe in a limited atonement, and they rejected the major tenets of Calvinism. And uh, so I, I'm not sure why I told you that, but apparently maybe somebody needed to hear that. Amen? But uh, my burden tonight is that our, our generation is being sucked into Calvinism, uh, and they're doing that because they're leaving the Baptist faith. And in many cases, what they'll do is they'll leave. Uh, and by the way, uh, one of the sad facts is Baptists uh, are not expository preachers, which they need to be. And uh, people see people expositorily preaching. Like it or not, R.C. Sproul 
uh, as wrong as he is on Calvinism and a lot of other things, he's an expository preacher. They hear somebody who's actually bringing something out of a text, they're like, wow, that's Bible preaching. And before you know it, they'll run to a John Piper, they'll run to a John MacArthur, who's a very studied uh, scholarly man, wrong, wrong as can be on some issues, but they'll jump to that. Before they know it, wow, they're in the land of Calvinism, and their entire theological system has changed. Now, what are you saying? Uh, we, we saw this coming, and we saw this happening. My pastor, who's in heaven now, James Beller, uh, he passed away about six and a half years ago. I think you, I saw his book on the table. Uh, Brother Beller wrote a book, maybe you've read it, The Coming Destruction of the Baptist. And I'll never forget when that book came out, he first shared it with me. I said, you know, that's what I've been teaching for a long time. He said, yeah, me too, but I couldn't say it the way. Uh, and there was a fellow that actually helped him to come to that position who didn't want his name to be known or anything like that. And actually, the manuscript was largely from an anonymous author. And Brother Beller took that, beefed it up, corrected it, fixed it, and wrote that book. And uh, what it outlined basically is how they have been swinging the axe to the roots of the Baptist faith for a long time, trying to cut down the scriptural churches. Well, it's work, folks. And uh, everywhere I go now, people are leaving and going to Stephen Andersonism. And uh, without even a thought, they're going into post-millennialism, all-millennialism, uh, mid- and post-tribulationalism. And they're going into hyper-Calvinism. And there's a reason for that, because they don't understand what a scriptural Baptist is. And if they did, and they understood the worth of that, and they understood that the greatest contributions ever across the world have been Baptist contributions, uh, it's been said, and it's been written, and the title uh, itself, uh, Why the World Owes a Great Debt of Appreciation to the Baptist. Amen? And uh, I, I, I have uh, really a subtitle of my book, which I don't have, and preacher's not happy about me, <laughs> uh, happy with me about that, is, uh, is called American Foundations. Amen? Why every, uh, why every American citizen owes a debt of appreciation to the Baptists. And, uh, that deals with the threefold cord of how if you remove the Baptist influence of America, it falls flat in its face. Now, let me just mention liberty. Uh, liberty's nothing to be trifled with. Liberty took so long for the Baptists to secure. Uh, one of the things I did with my wife and, uh, did a lot of research and I've been studying this for many years, but we got a chance to go to a lot of the locations I've been lecturing on. And, uh, we followed the history of American liberty uh, through the dungeons and through the caves and the, the rocks where their brains were bashed out and they were thrown off high precipices all across Europe where they were drowned in rivers. We went to those places. We went to the prison sites and the hanging sites and the disembowelment sites and, and the Lullard's Tower where they kept them, hold away, starved them to death in towers. We went to all those places and we followed the history of American liberty. And you know who, you, who, who flew that banner down through the ages? It was one body of believers. It was the Baptists. It wasn't, this is before there was a Presbyterian, before there was a Methodist, before there was a Charismatic, before there was a Pentecostal. Uh, it certainly wasn't the Puritans who persecuted us. It wasn't the Church of England who were the daughters of Rome. It certainly wasn't our persecutors, the Roman Catholic institution. There was one group that carried the blood-stained banner of Jesus Christ. And along with that, they fought and uh, desired to have uh, literally countries that would be based upon the uh, principles of liberty of conscience. Now, uh, with this new president coming in, it is a great threat to liberty. Um, and uh, John, of course, uh, the struggle for liberty, you know, starts with John in the New Testament. The first Baptist has his head cut off for preaching the truth. Then you have the apostles, uh, the disciples of Jesus Christ. They're hung upside down, they're crucified, they're boiled in oil, they're exiled. All these things happen. Our Savior is put on a cross. And uh, this struggle comes all the way down through the ages, and we can trace it. And I'll get to some of this a little bit later, but it culminates in America. Listen, where this place 
is going to be the largest group of people for the largest period of time to have the greatest degree of liberty that has ever been known in the world. There's never been anything even remotely close to the United States of America. Not just in its principles of civil government in reference to our court systems or anything else, but strictly in reference to personal individual liberty of conscience and specifically in reference to religion. And I want to tell you the story of that. And uh, it's a huge story, amen? And uh, the only place I know to start is to start with uh, the First Baptist coming to America. And I want to show you how literally, I want to tell you, talk to you about a man tonight who literally picked up this uh, ancient doctrine of liberty and he sailed it across the ocean and entrenched it into the American fabric so that you, can, you and I could enjoy the liberty of conscience that we have had uh, since we've lived in this, in this country. Amen? And I've had it since I was born. I'm very thankful for it. Let's look at our Bibles here. I've been asked not to preach this week. I love to preach. I love to preach expository messages, topical messages. It don't matter to me, uh, but I've been asked to teach. And so most of what you see this week will be up on the uh, slideshow. Pay no attention to the clock, amen. I, I, I talked to the Lord about this, and he said, it's okay if you just focus on what he has for you, and you don't have to look at the clock. If that changes, I'll let you know, amen. And here I am preaching against the priesthood, and I'm acting like one, amen, but um, just having fun with you. I promise I won't preach more than, <coughs> uh, amen. And I, you, you can take that to the bank, Amen. What I want you to see in Leviticus is this. Uh, you say, why speak on such a subject, you know, this, this, this invention of man? Well, no, liberty is a doctrine of God. And I want, want you, I want you to see where it's initiated here in scripture. And, you know, Baptists have always loved liberty. And a lot I could say about this, but Baptists have always desired societies that would be founded upon liberty of conscience. Now, for obvious reasons, they want to freely preach the gospel. But, uh, there's a, a lot of good bonuses that go with that. For example, uh, if we have societies where men get to reject the gospel because there's liberty, and we don't have to, we, they're not forced into our state churches, we don't make them bring their infants to compulsory infant baptism like the Puritans and the Anglicans did, and we don't make them pay parish state church preachers that never preach a gospel a day in their life, if they get to reject the gospel because there's liberty for everybody, then when they receive it, like this dear brother testified here a little bit ago in his song, we can assuredly know that they've received it of their own volition. That's what we desire. Uh, we're not Catholics. We don't try to get people into the kingdom of God through flame and dungeon and sword. We believe in the power of the gospel. Amen. And uh, these men fought and died for liberty for the atheist to stand on the street corner and spew his junk. So, well, man, we don't believe that. No. But if he doesn't have liberty, we're not going to have liberty. And that's what these liberal crazy people today that have literally lost their mind don't understand that when everybody on the right has been censored, guess who's next? Amen. Uh, because tyranny knows no bounds. And once it, it gets its hooks in, its claws in, uh, Thomas Jefferson said, government's a beast. And it, it has to be chained down by the chains of the people. And this is what we're seeing. We're seeing our liberty being stripped away. But the question I have is, how did we actually become this great nation? And I hope that we'll understand the history of it. We'll know the value of it. We'll be willing to stand for it and also to teach it to everyone that we know how important it is that we maintain our liberty here in America. Leviticus chapter 25, verse number 10. The Bible said, And ye shall hallow the fiftieth year, and proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee unto you. You shall return every man unto his possession. You shall return every man unto his family. Liberty is a doctrine of God. Now, these words proclaim liberty throughout all the land, out of all the inhabitants there. We'll come back to them 
uh, probably tomorrow night, maybe on Friday night. We'll talk about that a little bit more in reference to America. But let's go ahead and pray. When we're done, if I could have somebody hit the lights, I'd be a blessing. And then we'll be strictly looking at the slides from this point forward. Father, uh, we need you tonight. Lord, we are at a pivotal place in our country where not only do we see, uh, Lord, our country losing its liberty and rights everywhere, and a whole half of our society willing to go that route of stripping away personal individual liberty. It's, it's a nightmare. Uh, Lord, we're losing what so many millions have fought to gain. And it's a heartbreak that it's happening now. While my grandbabies are yet little, while my children are still two of them at home, and we knew we'd see it, Lord, we just didn't know we'd see it so soon. And, oh, Father, I, I pray, God, for uh, the good old U.S. of A. But, Father, uh, th- there's also been a great problem in our churches of young people not understanding why they're a Baptist. And, Father, they're leaving by the droves and they're embracing false theology and doctrine. And God, I pray that, Lord, this conference, if somebody's here and they're wavering, I pray this conference will make them a Baptist. I pray be a conviction in the depths of their soul. And Father, Lord, I, I'd rather die than to stop being a Baptist. Lord, I'd, I'd uh, Father, rather just go on to heaven, Lord, before I compromise the, the faith of our fathers. So Lord, I pray, Lord, you'd bind devils and distractions away from this place. Help me to say everything that's necessary and important. Give good understanding. And I pray, Lord, that you would get the glory from everything that is said and done. Father, please, I pray for the new president. So hard to say. President Joe Biden, I pray, dear God, that you'd break his wicked heart and save his soul from a devil's hell. Change him, Lord. I know that you can. Lord, I pray that you will. I pray, God, for the Congress and the senators and everyone that's making decisions, Father, for the rest of us. Please, Lord, save those lost heathen, I pray. God, we thank you now for what you'll do this evening. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. I am going to speak fast this week. You'll have to get used to it. Amen. I've got, I've just gotten away from apologizing. It does no good anyway. If you could keep the back ones on and uh, just these back ones on there, that'll work great. I think you, they can see that a whole lot better. So let's go ahead and jump in tonight. And Pastor, you owe me one for this. Amen. Customized slide. How do you like that? Amen. We're walking in tall cotton here. Amen. Uh, what I want to uh, throw out at you, and this is the outline of my book. And let me just say this, and I mean this in sincerity. Uh, we sell that book for $10. If you'd like that book and you pay for it, just pay $10. Give me your address. I will send you the book, uh, and, and I'll eat the shipping uh, when I get those in. Right now, they're on order. I had no idea we are going to sell so many books to the churches we were in recently. But we have a little book called American Foundations Laid by the Baptist. And one of the nice things about it is it's, it's not long. It's about 115, 120 pages but it's loaded with documentation. When we get to the Virginia Baptist, and we begin to talk to you about John Leland and how the Baptists secured our First Amendment to the Bill of Rights, uh, the documentation is just absolutely monumental. Everything from the Library of Congress Madison Papers to L.H. Butterfield, uh, a scholar in his own right, many different ways, uh, just first source documentation. Uh, and so anyway, it's a, it's a great little book just because of the truths that are in it. And so I do apologize for that. There's some other things we're missing. I'll, I'll try to make you a deal on those too, amen. Uh, but, but we do have a lot of things still back there. And by the way, uh, one of the newest books, I'm sure we didn't have it when we saw you last, Preacher, um, and that is, uh, it's called uh, True Stories from Our Baptist Heritage. It's an early reader, and we're trying to get a little bit of influence into the homeschoolers and uh, so our Christian schools. So maybe the first book a child would read, seven, eight, nine, hopefully not after that, amen, years old. Uh, that's a book and it's illustrated and you can use it also 
as a, as a storybook. So I wanted to mention that. Uh, that's one of the newer ones that's back there as well. Uh, and then there's a booklet series. And again, if you'd be interested in that, we could, we could ship that to you as well. But, uh, my, my, my premise is this, uh, that America became great through the influence of the Baptist. Now, that's not because I, I think Baptists are cool, uh, or because I'm proud. Uh, you know, I am. I have a pride problem just like you do. But, uh, the, the truth is, uh, my friend, that, 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 it shouldn't shock us to say this, okay? If you were to find a great nation, you say, how to become that way? It's a great Christian nation. Well, it's the scriptural churches that did that. Amen. Uh, God worked in and through his local New Testament churches and the salt and light emanating from those local New Testament churches, carrying out the only great commission Jesus gave to the churches. Amen. Uh, we would expect that those churches change and influence. And that's what we found historically. Any great society has been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ through the scriptural churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this premise shouldn't shock any of us. America became great, uh, and it's been called, quote, a Christian nation. Using that word as an adjective, we're not a Christian nation in the sense that you have to, uh, you know, make a profession or say that you're a Christian, of course, to be a citizen. And, of course, we we have laws against, you know, having uh, religious tests to be able to hold federal office. So I'm not saying we're a Christian nation in the sense that we're going to talk about that a little bit later. What they were talking about, uh, John Winthrop, when the Puritans came and they set up a city on a hill, they thought they were New Jerusalem, and they wanted a theocratic arrangement marrying the state and church together. But uh, nonetheless, people looked at this nation and said, it's a Christian nation. Well, how'd that happen? It was the scriptural churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are Baptist churches. Now, uh, the argument that I make is that there's three ways this took place. We will talk about, Lord willing, uh, the spiritual influence of the Baptists, which is uh, mountainous and uh, literally shaped this nation, which turned around and shaped other nations and really literally changed the world. America has. And then militarily, and that might surprise you when we get to that. And then uh, politically is where I'd like to park tonight. Now, you'll notice this is part one. And uh, there's probably like, so how many is there? There's like 11 teen, amen? Uh, I mean, it's just, it's endless, the contributions that the Baptists have made politically. And we're just going to try to focus on a few. Let's jump in tonight, and we'll start this way. We'll talk to you about John Clark and America's first Baptist church. Now, right off the bat, uh, somebody's been reading Bob Jones' curriculum or Becca or uh, Landmarks Freedom Baptist Press or uh, AC or Alpha Omega or, you know, whatever. And it doesn't matter what you're reading. Uh, they're probably going to tell you that Roger Williams started the First Baptist Church in America. First of all, uh, I'm not going to take a lot of time on that, but I will say this. Uh, Roger Williams was never a Baptist a day in his life. Not mad at him, just telling you a fact. Roger Williams never had biblical Baptist baptism uh, or any scriptural baptism. Uh, Roger Williams never had a Baptist ordination or any other even close to scriptural ordination whatsoever. And Roger Williams never started a Baptist church either. And what exists up there that they call the First Baptist Church that Roger Williams started is not the, the church that Roger Williams started, church quote. Uh, that church doesn't exist. It's a split from what Williams did. And had Williams further wanted scriptural authority, all he had to do was go to Dr. John Clark, who we're going to talk about here in a moment, who did have scriptural authority uh, coming across the ocean with that and a biblical Baptist ordination. And uh, so, but nonetheless, now that being said, I don't want to make the same mistake we make with Mary. Mary is to be called blessed. Amen. Uh, for all generations, we're to understand God blessed her and all of that. Here's what happens. Uh, Mary gets venerated. They put Mary on the half shell all over Pennsylvania. Amen. You got Mary on the half shell in everybody's yard. And she, you know, they pray the rosary and hail Mary and all that. My mother got saved. I realized she was trusting Mary at 50 years of age and not Jesus. And so I get all that. But here's what we do. We just take, kind of take Mary and give her a punt, you know, just kick her 
uh, you know, we hate Mary. No, we don't hate Mary. Amen. And, and so don't leave here and say, this guy's crazy. He hates the venerable Roger Williams. Not at all. I just want you to know the truth. And, and if I had the time to develop that, I would. It's just not really worthy of speaking of. Uh, the Bible's clear what ordination and baptism really is and what a church is. And Williams didn't have any of that. Okay. And, uh, but now how, however, he was a great friend of the Baptist, amen? And so don't kick him to the curb. He was a wonderful man. God greatly used him. He understood liberty, understood civil government, far greater than most of the minds that were here in the early first hundred years of the colonial era for sure. And God chose to greatly use him as a friend of the Baptist. Now that's God's choice. And God chose to do that in several places later on. You'll remember Williams when we get to Patrick Henry, because Patrick Henry is also a Presbyterian by profession, but a great friend of the Baptist. And so uh, Roger Williams, not a bad guy, but, but I know somebody might be thinking, wait a minute, I think this preacher, what he's talking about, now I know exactly what I'm talking about. And I can share a book with you, a couple books uh, that, that lay it all out, and uh, so maybe you can understand a little bit better. But all that being put aside, John Clark. Now I want to talk to you about this man, but this is really terrible. I'd love to sell you this booklet, but I just ran out, amen? Uh, we're horrible, amen? I, I'm, I'm trying to show you, look, we did a booklet series on 10 Baptist heroes of the faith, and uh, took us several years because every time I'd get done with another booklet, God would give me another book to write, and I'd write the book and then come back to the series. But uh, nonetheless, uh, we think this guy is very important. That's why he is number one out of the ten in the Baptist Heroes of the Faith series. So I'm just trying to emphasize, I'm going to talk to you tonight about a guy. Don't cringe at me. Don't throw everything out. Wait till you hear everything out. Let me try to prove this to you. And if you still have questions, I'll be happy to answer them. Uh, I think this man was as important as Thomas Jefferson... James Madison, George Mason, John and Sam Adams. This man was every bit as important as George Washington. Say, really? Absolutely. Now, I'm fixing to prove it to you here in just a little bit. And uh, just just hold that there and say, man, this guy, he's really trying to stretch this Baptist faith thing out. No, I'm actually going to show you something that you probably never heard nor understood before. This man ought to be taught, not just in every uh, Christian university, not just in every Baptist school, but he ought to be taught about in every public school. By the time they get done with fifth grade, they ought to be able to tell you all kinds of information about this man, just like they can about the founding fathers, who had to borrow his doctrine to be able to write their documents, we appreciate. We'll get to that a little bit later. I think you know where I'm going with this, amen. If we do venerate the Founding Fathers, and we do, and I love them, I've studied their lives extensively. Madison's probably one of my favorite. He's a multifaceted, really good guy, really bad guy, amen. And, uh, but uh, nonetheless, if we're going to love them, we need to understand, folks, that they, this man, had there been no John Clark, there could have been no founding fathers because this man literally picked up the doctrine of liberty, sailed it across the ocean, and made sure it was entrenched in the Rhode Island colony so that they could borrow that for the United States of America. So, John Clark, we love this guy. We do tours, amen? And there's us on a tour going to visit John Clark sites. Yes, we're actually that crazy, and uh, we do stuff like this. Uh, there's my son when he was a little tyke there at the uh, still, uh, continuing to this very day, the first and earliest Baptist church in America, now called the United Baptist Church John Clark Memorial Church, there in Newport, Rhode Island. We uh, presented this picture. You'll take a good look at this picture. You'll want to know a little bit about that. We'll tell you about that a little bit later. But several years ago, our pastor, Travis Burke, decided that it was incumbent upon us because nobody else was doing things like this, and they're trying to erase all the monuments and markers. They've shoved all the founding fathers into one day, and then yet they give others their own day. And we thought, hey, if Baptists aren't going to do this, nobody's going to. So we declared uh, the last Monday in September every year as annual John Clark Day. 
We do a massive social media blitz and push. It's on our app. It's on our websites. And what we do is we try to put out post after post and encourage others to do the same and reshare. What we're trying to do is notify our, our society members. I'm the director of the Baptist Heritage Revival Society. And we want them to notify educators, pastors, Sunday school teachers, uh, college professors, everybody, uh, you know, and all their cousins by the dozens, everybody you can find to download something, buy a book, buy a booklet, and share something about this man so that we can keep his memory alive because far too few people understand who this man was. So we presented this to our pastor, and uh, it really stands in a prominent place right outside the boys' bathroom in our, in our Christian school. Amen. Uh, that was a joke for you. Amen. But that's really where it hangs. Amen. All right. John Clark in America's first Baptist church. What about this stuff? Well, the pivotal... Dr. John Clark, I want to introduce you to this wonderful man that you want to know as much as you can promise you about. Uh, so God chose to raise up key men to unfold his plan for America. John Clark was one such man. Everything that he did was either revolutionary, unheard of, or thought to be impossible. Now, the reason for that is because you are in the infancy of the colonial era. Every tree's got to be cut down. Every uh, cottage has got to be built. Every road's got to be constructed. Uh, the parameters got to be uh, drawn out. Governments have to be constructed. Jails have to be built. All the legal system, everything. And John Clark was in the thick of all of it. He was simply br- gifted with a brilliant mind and highly educated in the University of Leiden, Holland as well. And uh, so he was uh, just a, a man, uh, uh, really a man of the world in many ways. Clark was a church builder, a colony builder, and an early framer of our sound form of government. There is a wonderful picture of the venerable Dr. John Clark. I hope you will truly acquaint yourself with his history. He was born in Westhorpe, England, in a small farming community. So, of course, we know where England's at. And then we just blew right through that. Amen? This thing has a mind of its own. Just get used to it. Amen? It's got a devil in it, I think, on certain slides. He was reared in a family of eight children, and five of his siblings would follow him to the New World, and four of them would settle in Newport, Rhode Island. Now, before we get to the next slides, I want you to realize something. And there's a great book you can read on this. It's called Trials and Sufferings for Religious Liberty in New England. And uh, uh, there's there's a a book by J.R. Graves by that title, and there's other books uh, that, that deal with this. But many of these people who were looking for liberty and wanted to worship God according to the dictates of their conscience, when they got on the boats and had left everything in their old life behind, never to return again, they found out out on the ocean water after maybe a week or a month or two months that they weren't going to have liberty in the place that they were going. Can you imagine that? We're going to have liberty. We're going to have our own churches. And you find out when you're just about to the shore, you're not going to get liberty in this new place. You're going to be under a stringent state church again, and even worse than it was in England. Well, this is what happened to a lot of these men. And, of course, Clark was one of those men. Clark, of course, was educated in a local village school, and as I mentioned, in the University of Leiden in Holland. It is my theory, we don't have the documentation, I'll tell you that up front, it is my theory that his baptism was derived from the Anabaptists that were there in Leiden, Holland. His education. By the time he reached America, he was a master in theology. It is believed he was baptized and possibly ordained either in Elder Stilwell's Baptist Church or under the famous John Spilsbury. By the time he reached America... As I mentioned, he was a master in theology as an apologist or a defender of the Baptist doctrine. 
He was an ardent defender. Judges and state church constables, when they drew him into court under suspicion of being a Baptist minister, they thought it best for him to keep his mouth shut. It was said that often when Clark would open his mouth and they would ask a question, will you please tell us then, sir, what you do believe? And after a little while of him articulating, the judge was sorry that he asked the man to open his mouth because not only was the jury finding them so persuaded of his position, but the judge himself would come under conviction and want Clark to shut his mouth. This is the caliber of man that he was. He was a man uh, who had a, a great control of the English language and was a very learned individual and knew the Bible very thoroughly. By the time he reached America, he was also a master in medicine. You can think about if the infant colonies were in desperate need of medical doctors. Upon his death, he was honored by the Newport Medical Society for his contributions to the infant colony. This is documented, by the way, in Newport, Rhode Island. There's a monument, and it deals with the Newport Medical Society bestowing this honor upon him as he was he was crucial uh, to the existence of the colonies and uh, to their health, their physical health, while he was there in the early colonies. By the time he reached America... This is not a stretch. He was also a master in law. Now, why would this matter? Because the state churches were constantly changing the laws. If you don't understand what I mean by state church, I'm going to teach you that here in just a minute. You're going to understand. Most people don't realize this, folks. America was not born in liberty. Okay, uh, when the when the colony started, there was no liberty at all. All right, and we're going to get to that here in a bit. But notice his his legal mind, his mastery in this this field, would guide his mind through the maze of ever changing laws that were enacted to stifle religious freedom. He knew how to get around those laws and ultimately to bring liberty to America religiously, regardless of the laws that were in place in the several colonies. By the time he reached America, he was also a master not only legally and uh, theologically, as we mentioned, and such, but but also in civil government. Now, this is not a stretch at all. You're going to find that probably uh, the most important documents had ever issued from a pen outside of the Bible itself, issued from the pen of a Baptist minister by the name of John Clark. The governmental documents he authored, along with the framing expertise of Clark, display a brilliance in this arena that outshines the greatest human minds. We will attempt to sum up many of Clark's accomplishments under two major headings. First of all, I do want to focus for a bit on how this church got started and the fact that it was the earliest and longest continuing Baptist church on American soil. Then we will focus on the fact that he was a colony builder. And not only did he found a colony, but this colony would be the most important colony out of all of the 13 original colonies. In fact, this colony would become the cookie cutter from whence the United States of America was ultimately patterned because of its success, specifically, not only legally, but in the realm of religious liberty specifically. And we'll talk about that as well. See, that's a lot to talk about. It is, and time's getting away. Let me have to kick it into high gear. Clark was a tool used to transplant Baptist principles and practices as well as scriptural authority into the new world. Well, as I mentioned, when Clark came, he had his eyes open. He and his wife arrived in Boston in 1637. Enjoy this three seconds. It takes about eight hours to make a slide like that. Amen? But uh, uh, anyway, uh, they came and hoped for religious liberty. Again, found out on the boat, like many, that they were not going to have religious liberty when they got to America. So they land in Boston. And at this time, in 1637, he learns of Roger Williams, who arrived in about 1634, and finds out that Williams was actually banished 
before Clark arrived. Now, why was he banished? Well, he was banished for dissenting views. They actually wanted him to be a pastor of one of the state church Puritan churches there, uh, Puritan parishes there uh, in Boston, and he refused to do so. He did not believe like them. And uh, Roger Williams was kind of all over the map. And ultimately, in the end, he became a seeker for like the rest of his life, trying to find the truth and never able to just take the Bible at face value. However, he was banished. Now, what does it mean to be banished? That means this. You are a disturbance to civil order. And and this can be in a variety of ways. Religiously uh, was the area that they were concerned about Roger Williams with, not because of what he held to, but because of what he rejected, which was state churchism. So they married the state and the church together, and Williams said, no, everyone should be able to decide for themselves how they're going to worship God and if they're going to worship God. So what do they do? They immediately confiscate your weapons and they turn you out to the American wilderness or they simply kick you out of their colony and don't really care where you land. Well, Williams was banished. Now, this was much like a death sentence, by the way. When you take away a man's livelihood because he's no longer able to reside where he works, you take away his weapon, he can no longer hunt, he can no longer defend himself. This was in some cases a death sentence. So this is what happened to Roger Williams. So Clark comes and finds out, hey, it's not going to be great here. Uh, There's no religious liberty like I originally thought there may be. The magistrate's law made it illegal to be affiliated with non-approved churches. So not only did you have to be a part of the Puritan State Church, but if they found you intermeddling with other churches, everything in the world could happen to you. First of all, they'd start to fine you. They'd start knocking your door and find out why you did not attend the state church, why you weren't paying your parish state church taxes. They could confiscate everything from your horse to your house to your lands, uh, put your children as indentured servants. They could do anything they wanted to do. By the way, there were some books written later, and Isaac Backus basically spent his whole life documenting a lot of the atrocities on the Baptist, many of which I just mentioned. Nonetheless, Clark finds this out, that Williams is in trouble. Well, Clark is next. He has his weapons confiscated under suspicion of being a, quote, Anabaptist, all right? So for being a Baptist, they take away his weapons. Well, what he was facing was what I call the Calvinist theocracy. And what this is, is it's a marriage of state and church together. And I'll tell you why they did this, okay? First of all, it goes back to this. When John Winthrop came, who was the first governor uh, of of, uh, the Massachusetts Bay, He believed that uh, they were in a theocratic arrangement with God and that the church replaced Israel. If you've ever heard of the terminology, at least, replacement theology, they believe that God is completely done with Israel. All the promises now are null and void. They're fulfilled in the church now, are borrowed by the church. That means, yes, all millennialism. There's no millennial kingdom. A lot of times what dovetails on that is called praetorism. So they believe, say, what do you do with Revelation then, which talks about, you know, the restoration of Israel? Well, that was fulfilled in 70 AD allegorically. All that already happened, you know, with the destruction of Jerusalem. So this replacement theology, and what they say is now, we are now Israel in the eyes of God. And as Israel was in a theocratic arrangement, in other words, to be a Jew religiously meant you were, you were a Jew legally, meant that you were a Jew uh, governmentally in every single way. And so in other words, a Jew was expected to keep the law. And so these people in the in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, they wanted to enforce the law. And if you broke the law, they could stone you. They could do just like the Jews did in the Old Testament. And I'll show you where they hung people to death by the neck and beat them and did all types of atrocities to people for not following the Old Testament. That's how firmly they believed in this horrible theology, this replacement theology. Well, the Baptists believed in a proper separation of church and state. 
which I'm sure your pastor has probably, and don't come up here and say, I never heard that before, amen. I hate when they do it too, preacher, amen, because uh, you probably taught this a thousand times. But the truth is, a separation of church and state is needed and necessary in the proper context and for the proper reasons, with the proper motives. However, it was never intended to keep Baptist people uh, from taking their principles of the table of civil government. It was never meant to erase God from every every realm of society, etc., etc. Separation of church and state uh, was an acted for one purpose, was fought for for one purpose. By the way, the Virginia Baptists, nobody ever fought for it more than they did. The Virginia Baptists fought for it to keep the ever-encroaching ungodly arm of an ungodly lost state out of a jurisdiction which it did not belong, the local New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and our Lord is not the government. Amen? And we will uh, go along with them as long as they don't go against the Bible, but there comes a time you ought to obey God rather than men. And if the state comes in and tries to control in that, in that case, we, we have to demand that separation of church and state. So uh, they wanted this. And there's this belief that the church should be sovereign and autonomous was described by the statement, a garden enclosed. A garden enclosed, my sister, my spouse. Sound familiar, amen? Roger Williams said the church was a garden enclosed in the wilderness outside the garden is the state. Amen? Baptists have always believed in this separation. The Roman Catholic institution violated this belief and murdered millions of Baptists because of their stand for this separation. So here's what was really going on. It's Baptist principles of liberty versus the state church machine. Roger Williams and John Clark believe the state should not enforce the first table of the law. In other words, the Ten Commandments was now law in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Not like it's law like you ought to follow these, like it's law like if you break it, we'll punish you, and they did, and it was consistent for well over 100 years. And so, for example, the Baptist said, Thou should have no other gods uh, before thee. Okay, before me rather. So do we as Baptists believe people shouldn't have other gods? Sure we do. But if people have other gods, are we going to go throw them in jail and beat them up over it? No. We want them to come to Christ. We want to come to those things by conviction. That's Gentile nations working in the economy of the New Testament local church, not in a theocratic arrangement like Israel. We are not Israel. Thou shalt not make any, any, any graven images. I was born and raised a Catholic. I've been to the images, prayed to the images, you know, all that business. I wish people wouldn't do it, but I don't, I'm not for going and rounding people up to do it and beating them up and hanging them to death by the neck. I'm for preaching the gospel to them, you see. And so this was what was set up in the colony. Had you lived in this jurisdiction, you had to follow this, and if you didn't, you would be punished. The Baptist said, wait, we don't want a colony like that. We want a better colony that's based upon the principles of liberty of conscience. Well, people mocked at that. In fact, later when the Baptists, we may get to this a bit later, when they argued at Carpenter's Hall in the first session of the, uh, uh, the Constitutional Convention, uh, John and Sam Adams argued with the Baptists and said, if you think there's going to be a change in the state church arrangement, you might as well expect a change in the solar system. They never wanted this to change. The state church people, and Sam Adams was John Winthrop reincarnated. He was a very religious uh, Puritan type who believed that we should enforce the first table of the law. And we are far now into the 1700s when we talk about Sam Adams. But this is what was going on. Now, Baptists believe this is okay. Thou shalt not kill. Now, if you kill in a civil society, now you're in trouble, see? Because you can swing your fish, you know, as much as you want right to here, when it hits here, then you've crossed the line, now we got to punish, amen? And so, this is how this went, thou shalt not steal, etc. So, they were for proper civil government. You say, well, did they really hurt anybody over this stuff? How about this lady, Ann Hutchison? Ann Hutchison was a lady who began to have Bible studies in her home. 
her and her husband, and they had all kinds of people coming, and the state church hated them. She was very vocal. She was bringing people to different positions in the state church and preaching Christ and such. And so they banished her. Eventually, they told her over and over and over not to do this stuff, and she wouldn't listen. And so here's her banishment, carried out in court records. You can read this. Therefore, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the name of the church, I do not only pronounce you worthy to be cast out, but I do cast you out. And in the name of Christ, do I deliver you up to Satan, that you may learn no more to blaspheme, to seduce, and to lie. And I do account you from this time forth to be a heathen and a publican, and so to be held of all the brethren and sisters of this congregation, that's the Puritans in uh, Massachusetts Bay, and of others. Therefore I command you in the name of Jesus uh, Christ Jesus and of the church as a leper, that's a state church, to withdraw yourself out of the congregation. So they banished this woman uh, from being a part. Now, by the way, you'd lose your inheritance. Uh, you could lose your place to live. You'd lose all respect. Uh, you are just basically a legal enemy at this point of the state, and in many cases of your family as well. If you go to the Boston State House, and if you're not sure where that's at, if you walk up uh, the Boston Commons, there's an old state house downtown on the Freedom Trail. That's right down in Center City. But if you go to the top of the Commons, the, the state house, the functioning state house today, is right on the top of the Boston Commons. Beautiful area, and there's a little Ferris wheel there and a nice grassy area. George Whitfield, incidentally, preached off the top of those commons uh, to about 30,000 people uh, when the whole population of Boston was about 15,000, which is an amazing thing. But nonetheless, this statue is right out in front of the State House. And so they document this themselves, that this woman was banished. Now, sadly today, they try to make her one of the early women's libbers. Okay? And she wasn't a women's liber. Uh, she was simply fighting for liberty of conscience and just wanted to believe the Bible and study the Bible with her friends. Uh, there's a founder's brook. This is an interesting place. We'll get to this a little bit later. To a lady named Ann Hutchison and then a lady by the name of Mary Dyer. There's the Boston State House. And there is the statue to Mary Dyer. Who's Mary Dyer? Well, she was a Quaker who was warned and warned and warned, and she left and came back, and they told her, don't you come back or we'll kill you. And sure enough, she came back, and they killed her. The Boston officials hung her to death by the neck, and she was a Quaker, uh, a dissenting uh, believer. So just so you understand, uh, oh boy, there's a lot to get into. So you have Catholicism burped up out of hell, okay? It, it is it is imposter church. Uh, they took over all the existing apostatizing scriptural churches that had gone into apostasy and turned them into state churches. So many centuries later, then you have King Henry VIII and he starts Anglicanism or the Church of England by capturing then, <laughs> kind of pulls one on the Catholics. By the way, things you do usually get done to you, but he captures all the Catholic institutions inside of his realm. I've been to some of the ones you can see where they used to be Catholic and then they became Anglican. And I've been to some of those cathedrals all throughout northern England, uh, documenting some of that. I have pictures and video footage of all that. But nonetheless, then you have the Puritans, okay? So you have Rome, no authority, wicked. You have the daughter of Rome, Anglicanism, which starts over a, a divorce. The Pope wouldn't grant a divorce, so you got a brand new, quote, church popping up. Then, of course, uh, you have the Puritans. And the Puritans were those who wanted to purify the Church of England. Okay? Then you have the Congregationalists. So you have some dissenting groups, though. And some of the dissenting groups are groups like uh, the, the Hutterites and uh, the Amish a little bit later. 
the Mennonites, the Baptists, the Quakers. Let me say this, the Baptists and the Quakers during this time frame are the only two that actually existed. And uh, the Quakers, as you'll see later in America, although they descended against the state church, they were never willing to fight for it like the Baptists were. In fact, when we get to Virginia, I'll document for you 45 Baptist preachers by name, and I will show you how they sat in jail fighting for liberty of conscience. We have no evidence of a Presbyterian ever sitting in jail. We have no evidence uh, of, a, of a Church of Christ. We have no evidence of a Quaker ever sitting in jail fighting for liberty of conscience. So there was one group, the Baptist. However, she was a Quaker and was a dissenter and was most likely a believer in Jesus Christ. And she was hung to death by the neck. So this is what uh, these guys were dealing with. Notice Mary Dyer, Quaker, witness for religious freedom, hanged on Boston Common, 1660. My life not availeth me in comparison to the liberty of the truth. This is as big as can be right outside of the Boston State House. if you have a mind to go see it. Now, uh, these guys say, hey, we're not going to find liberty here. They're killing people. Uh, this is terrible. we got to get out of here. So it is my theory, and I believe this is tenable, uh, that they uh, left Boston and the first Baptist church on American soil existed in its infancy as a traveling church in 1637 when these Baptists left Boston and decided to try to find a place of liberty where they could ultimately have their church founded. So at first, they travel. Uh, they travel and uh, they, they go uh, up to New Hampshire. And in New Hampshire, it's a really cold winter. They decide not to stay in New Hampshire. They begin to sail. In so doing, they come across Roger Williams, who encourages them to talk to some Indian chiefs and procure a piece of land right where that arrow on the bottom is. That little island there is called the Island of Aquidneck. Now, the Island of Aquidneck is a part of Rhode Island, or the Island of Rhodes, as it was called back then. And they're going to land on the north end of this island. Now, this is not an island anymore in the sense that there's bridges both on the north and on the south where you can enter and exit. Beautiful bridges, by the way, across the Narragansett Bay. But he encouraged them to go up to the Narragansett Bay and to land on this island. And there maybe they could have a church. Amen? And they could have liberty because there's barely anybody there at this time frame. So what they do is they land on the north end of the island. And they named it. I always thought that'd be cool, didn't you? I just, man, I wish to like travel around and say, hey, I, I named this this and named this that. And they start building the sign right away. Amen? They did it. They weren't very creative. It was the mouth of the port, hence they called it Port's Mouth. Amen? But uh, nonetheless, here something very important is going to happen. Something that's never been done in the history of the world prior to this. They compacted together to form the first government in history that provided full liberty of conscience to all. And they're going to write a document. Let me rephrase that. John Clark, the Baptist minister, is going to write a document. So if you're waiting for his, his governmental expertise and his legal mind and all that stuff to come out, it's about to come out really big time. Never had there been a congregation or a township or a country or whatever like this before where everyone had full liberty and could believe anything they wanted to believe. Look, if that scares you, you don't believe in the power of the Holy Ghost and the power of the Gospel. Amen? I believe God can do the work, and I still believe preaching gets it done, not a sword in a dungeon and all the other mess. All right? So here he wrote what is called the famed Portsmouth Compact. If you don't think it's important and you don't think it's special, uh, first of all, this is going to be the, the this is the, the beginning of it all. Amen? Uh, this is a watershed moment, man. This is going to change the course 
of world history. But uh, this is different in the sense that you might like the Mayflower Compact. Maybe you've read it and you adore it and all of that. A lot of people love that and they love the, the early colonial charters. And they say, look, people are so religious. You didn't know if they were starting a state or a church. And the truth is they were starting state churches. But uh, in that document, as grand as it is, they pledge their lives and loyalties to the king. This one's a little bit different. They pledge their properties, their life, their posterity to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And uh, you can read this. Uh, this is uh, just a monument that is erected there in that little park I showed you, Mary Dyer and Hutchison Park in Portsmouth, uh, New, uh, Portsmouth Road Island on the top end of Aquidneck. And uh, there's a better picture right there. And uh, I'll show you what it says. We whose names are underwritten do hereby solemnly in the presence of Jehovah incorporate ourselves into a body politic and as he shall help will submit our persons lives and estates unto our lord jesus christ the king of kings not any other king uh, and lord of lords and to all those perfect and absolute laws of his given it is holy word of truth to be guided and judged thereby this doctrine they believed in they now wanted to put it to the test and wanted to see if others would embrace it so they began to spread what they believed amen In 1638, realizing that most of the commerce, make a long story short, was on the southern end of the island, they moved down to Newport. Newport back then, uh, I'm trying to think, uh, Newport uh, is right now like the Myrtle Beach, uh, I guess, of the north. But uh, back then it was one of the, it was probably the key shipping uh, place in America. It was a key shipping port. Newport was, was just flourishing and growing like crazy. So they moved to the south end of the island. Here's where they would build their first meeting house for this traveling church. And in 1638, this would be the permanent, still standing uh, uh, location for the oldest, longest standing Baptist church in American history. Okay. And uh, you can go and visit this. And they love visitors, by the way. And Newport is an awesome place to go visit. I can tell you exactly what to do and where to go if you go there. We actually have an app as well. I think your pastor or some of the guys may be acquainted with that. So John Clark was a church builder. And that exists to this day. And then John Clark was a colony builder. Now, believe me, as important as the first church is, a lot of people maybe heard of that or you get that. Maybe you hadn't heard about this, okay? I have no idea why it's jumping so far ahead. Let me see if we can try this again. John Clark was a colony builder. Wilbur Nelson stated, From the beginning of the movement that resulted in the founding of Portsmouth and Newport, I I, I always win this battle. This computer doesn't get that. Amen? We're going to try this one more time. This is highly unorthodox. Don't try this at home. Amen? Here we go. From the beginning of the, the, the movement that resulted in the founding, it's a quote, and I can't mess it up, uh, of Portsmouth and Newport until the Charter of 1663 was obtained, he was active in public affairs. Watch as Clark served on many important committees and in a wise and constructive way was the advisor and leading spirit in the organization and administration of town and colony government. Okay? Now, we'll let it do its thing. Amen? I'd like to say it was ever since Biden got in office, but it wasn't. It was long before that. Amen? <laughs> That'll be a new thing. Okay, so let's fast forward to 1651, okay? All right, 1651, you have John Clark, and he's pastoring this church, all right? And uh, uh, so, man, I got stuff flying everywhere. Amen? So in 1651, Clark is pastoring this church, and he is beckoned by a man by the name of William Witter. 
And uh, William Witter is now living where that star is up there in the north. And uh, he's up there in Lynn, Massachusetts. Lynn, Lynn, the house of sin, they call it. Really bad place today. And it's a suburb, a northeastern suburb of Boston, not far from Salem. But uh, he's up there. He was a member of the First Baptist Church at one time. And now desiring, because he's aged and, and blind and, and not long for this world, he wants his pastor to come and travel up there uh, from Newport to preach to him. So it was that Obadiah Holmes, who, uh, by the way, was now a preacher boy under John Clark in the First Baptist Church in America, got saved, or at least got secured in his salvation and, and such, at the first evangelistic revival meeting ever held on American soil, preached by Dr. John Clark. And so he's a young firecracker preacher. Then John Crandall, he's simply an active layman there in the church. So they navigate to the mainland. There are no bridges off of Quidnick. They navigate to the mainland. They make the 80-mile trip all the way up to Lynn, Massachusetts, and they're going to preach and encourage their friend, Mr. William Witter. However, on July 20th, 1651, Obadiah Holmes, Dr. John Clark, and John Crandall were arrested and taken into custody for holding an unauthorized church service. Now, if you can understand this, this man, William Witter, he's being watched. He has been drugged into court numerous times. In fact, in the Salem court records, it's actually absolutely astonishing some of the things that he said to them, like infant baptism is the badge of the whore, and they who stay while the child is baptized, you do worship the devil, and all these kind of things. I just picture this old cantankerous Baptist guy ready to die and not really care what anybody thinks, amen? So they're watching this guy's house. Well, three strange Baptists come into town, and, and the constables are watching them. They sing and hug necks and all of that. Next day they begin to preach and, and sing and the constables burst in and arrest them for having an uncertified church service under the Massachusetts Bay Colony laws in 1651. So what happens? Well, the same day, Holmes, Clark, and Crandall were forced. Sometimes it does too much. Sometimes it don't do anything. Amen? Who makes these slides anyway? To attend a Puritan church service. I'm thinking I might, my blood sugar might have been out of whack when I made a few of these. Amen? So, yes, and this is a Puritan state church preacher, and I did find the fruitiest picture I could find. Amen? Because <laughs> they, they just read from the common prayer book. Most of them had never been saved and uh, never preached the gospel a day in their life, all of that. So this is what you call the old, same old, same old ecclesiastical coercion. They tried it with all the Baptists down through the ages. We'll educate these poor saps, you know, by the way, that's what Ocasio Cortez there wants to do, you know, with us poor hillbillies who try to get us straightened around. Now we've been on Trump juice too long or something. I don't know. But, uh, this is craziness, but this is what these educated crowd does. Amen. And, uh, but anyway, so they take him to this guy's congregational church service. They're thinking, man, we'll turn him into some congregationalists. Everything will be wonderful. And so they walk in and they tip their hats. But guess what? They took their hats and put them right back on their heads, which was a declaration. This is no house of God. Uh, to which the, uh, the, the constable and the sheriff, uh, they commanded the men to knock the hats off the heads of these Baptists, which they commenced to do. They then sat the Baptists down, and as this man got up to articulate in the common prayer book, John Clark stood up and was silenced on several occasions as he turned to the audience and said, don't listen to this man. He has fluffy hair. No, he didn't say that, amen. But uh, literally, he'd start preaching the gospel to them. And uh, so he was shut up, silenced. They never made it through the whole church service. They dragged the Baptists out. That ecclesiastical course never has worked real well, amen. And uh, But they took these men out, put them in the common prison. And then they took a trip to Boston. They were taken to Boston and committed to prison on Tuesday, July 2nd, 1651. Now, this is the old downtown Boston prison. 
I mean, it's within a block or two of everything major downtown. We'll show you it here in just a bit. So they take him to prison. Holmes, Clark, and Crandall then had a trial, which was no trial, much like the trial of our Savior. They are tried in court on July 31st. Really, there was just a commencement of the reading of the charges, and then they charged these men, sentenced these men, and Holmes got slapped in the face at one point. Uh, they were told, this I'll not have this trash brought into my courtroom. The curse of God go with me. They slapped them around pretty good, but this was the charges, and this was uh, the sentence. Clark was fined 20 pounds or to be well whipped. Now, well whipped meant 20 lashes, commensurate with the 20 pounds, with a three-quartered whip, which would have produced 60 slices in his body. These are hard-cornered whips, not bull whips. They would be, of course, a whip with three lashes coming out and such, and so that would be uh, 60 slices. Uh, or Crandall, then he was fined five pounds or uh, to be well whipped, that would have meant five lashes. And then Obadiah Holmes was fined 30 pounds because he was the most vocal, being a young preacher, not able to keep his mouth shut, amen. And he was fined 30 pounds or to be given 30 lashes with a three-quartered whip, which would produce 90 slices in his body. By the way, that last one there, if I could just mention this quickly, that was the same sentence you're looking at as a sentence that they put upon rapists during the same time frame. This was going to be an attempt to kill Obadiah Holmes. And the idea was, if we can kill him, we'll stop this Baptist movement in dissent. See, just like the Pharisees, the money coffers were drying up. The crowds were no longer coming to the state churches. They were listening to every dissenting preacher in every byway and such. And so they're very bothered about this. Let's kill this man. They killed others. This was not going to be a big deal. This was going to be uh, their desire. A trip to the whipping post. Holmes said, agreeing to the payment of my fine would constitute admission of wrongdoing. Incidentally, John Crandall, somebody paid his fine and he was almost immediately released. John Clark, the day they were going to be beat, he was walking to the post and a man came up and pressed the money that he owed into the hands of one of the state church constables. We believe, can't prove it, but it's not documented one way or another that it was against his wishes and they released him attempting to make an example out of this young preacher, Obadiah Holmes. After being stripped to the waist, Holmes was indeed given 30 lashes with a three-quartered whip. People that were there spoke of this as a violent beating. They said the man would come up and flex his muscles to demonstrate his prowess in executing these lashes. He stopped, as Holmes said, and spit on his hands on several occasions, gripping the whip as hard as he could to inflict as much pain as possible. It began to lash his body open, and people in the crowd right downtown in Boston, in fact, if you stand on the Boston Massacre site, which is a circle of bricks all around, that is the same exact spot where the post stood, where they beat this Baptist almost to death this day. Uh, people were crying out. Thirteen people were arrested for, the, uh, for crying out for the beating to stop. People were getting saved at this. Everyone was moved to tears. But Holmes stated that as I was on the post and the whip began to hit my body, he said, I had such a spiritual manifestation of God that although the pain was grievous, it was far removed from me and that I could well bear it by the grace of God. He said, and furthermore, now that I knew that God would stand with me, I would stand with Him forever. Holmes spent most of his time being beaten, exhorting those in the crowd not to turn their back on Jesus, but to stand up for their inalienable rights of conscience given by the God of heaven. It was a horrible scene to behold. When it was all over, they released Holmes from the post, expecting him to crumble to the ground. 
These two men, John Hazel and John Spur, uh, they, they helped him from the post, which was a no-no. But when a state church constable walked up to stop them from moving Holmes from the post, he looked into the face of Holmes. Holmes lifted up his eyes, looked this state church constable in the face and said, Ye have beaten me as with roses. Amen. Uh, now we'll tell you a little bit more of that, but this speaks of the indomitable spirit of the Baptist. Amen. Uh, just mark, you can say whoop, whoop right there. Amen. I mean, this is one for the good guys. Amen. This is the equivalent of grabbing the devil by the throat and spitting right in his snoot. Amen. I'm sure God got great glory and victory from this. Holmes said, God is worthy to be beaten. Now, why would he use the analogy of roses? We'll get to that here in just a little bit. This brave spirit, it caused a stir among the Baptists. And as has been the case down through history so many times, whenever the devil tried to stop the churches, persecution came and they'd scatter and yet more churches than ever would spring up. And this was certainly the case. The effects of Holmes beating. First of all, John Spur was saved at the beating. I'd say that was worth taking a stand. Amen? See, whenever you and I take a stand and it's truly in the center of God's will, God is always going to bless in ways that we cannot understand. John Spur and John Hazel were in prison for helping Holmes from the post. Hazel would later die as a result of the imprisonment complications for involving himself with Holmes that day. John Clark, then being inspired, wrote a book called Ill News from New England. In it, he documented the, the severe punishment of dissenters here in America, Baptist Quakers and others, and delivered that to England for the king to read so that he would try to put a stop to the persecution of the Baptists over here. Henry Dunster, who was the president of Harvard and the first president of Harvard University who gave his life and his limb and his property and all of his money to found Harvard University, sided with Holmes, got saved by the grace of God, would not bring his son to infant baptism, and therefore was forced from his presidency. You want to talk about a travesty? I probably shouldn't run this rabbit. But uh, I was standing there one time at the grave of Henry Dunster. You can see Harvard Yards from where Henry Dunster's buried. And a friend of mine uh, was there lecturing uh, and told me this story. He said, I was here lecturing one time, Brother Alexander, the man that taught me the schematic of Boston, a dear preacher friend of mine. And uh, he said, I was lecturing. I had some uh, friends come through, some Baptist preachers, and I wanted to show them Brother Dunster's graveside. And it's right there in the Harvard Cemetery. And uh, he said, I was telling them the story. And a lady trickled in in the back and stood and listened to pretty much the whole thing. When it was all over, she came and said, Sir, what tour group do you work for? What tour company? He said, Ma'am, I don't work for a tour group. I'm just a Baptist minister. I pastor in Lynn, Massachusetts, where Obadiah Holmes and these guys were, were captured for, for preaching the gospel and such and told her the story. He said, I was just letting these guys know about what happened to Mr. Dunster. She said, that is amazing. She said, I'm on the history chair of Harvard University. She said, I never heard of that before. That's a level of ignorance it's hard to even fathom. You can throw a rock from his grave and hit the front where there's big scriptures on Harvard Yard's massive columns when you walk through them to enter. And she had never even heard of this. Folks, listen, it's no wonder Baptists don't know. Here's a lady, and she don't even know who the first president of a university is, the most prestigious so-called university in the world, and actually what happened to the man. All right, that's enough of me ranting, amen? I'll get back to teaching, amen? Henry Dunster proclaimed Baptist beliefs loudly, and people listened. 
until the First Baptist Church of Massachusetts Bay proper was started, of which he would have been the pastor, but he died before that could happen. Thomas Gould was influenced by Dunster and fought for the establishment of the First Baptist Church in Boston. They called this man a bulldozer in the courts in the Bay Colony. Uh, Holmes became then the pastor in Newport after Clark. You say, wait a minute, you mean Clark died already? Not just yet. Everything I've told you was to bring you to this point. I want to show you this great contribution of Dr. John Clark that is the reason why I told you he is as important as Jefferson and Madison, quite possibly more important, and even George Washington himself. Why would I say that? Holmes blazed a trail for us today, and then he pastored the church. Well, let me show you a few things real quickly, and then we'll get back to that. Here's the side of the beating. little sign here is about a block. You go straight behind my back down that street, not that one that you can see there, but uh, you're about a block and a half uh, off of the Boston Square, the beating site. Um, the, uh, the old state house is right behind me, right on the other side of that building there. But this is, I'm pointing to this sign, what does this sign mean? Well, this sign is on a building that now sits on the location of the actual prison that they're imprisoned in. Now, why does that matter? The first prison in Boston stood on this site, close to the center of government and trade, in the early settlement. In the Scarlet Letter, Nathaniel Hawthorne, of all people, describes its appearance. The rust of the ponderous ironwork of its oaken door looked more antique than anything else in the New World. Check this out. But on one side of the portal was a wild rose bush. Now I had been presented a thesis, a theory as it were, on this. Could it have been that Holmes, as he was there in the jail, and seemingly uh, abandoned by man, uh, and, and discouraged, that maybe it was that still he had his faith in the Rose of Sharon. And maybe it was as he looked out the window, the only thing that could be positive on the outside, and all the hustle and bustle and smoke and smell of the busy Boston streets, was a beautiful wild rose bush that maybe wafted its scent into the cell. And was it maybe the Rose of Sharon giving him that wild rose bush that he was thinking about the day that he stumbled almost to his death off that post and said, Sirs, you have beat me as with roses. Certainly, I believe he had Jesus on his mind. Amen? So it's a beautiful, beautiful theory. Amen? I guess we'll have to ask Brother Holmes when we get to heaven. Amen? Because now that Biden's in, it could be sooner than we know. Amen? Alright, enough of that. After the beating, after Clark saw his friend Obadiah Holmes beat nearly to death, he wrote Ill News from New England. There's another book, okay? And uh, by the way, this book was written to notify those in England about the terrible treatment of Clark and his fellow Baptists in New England. In it, he stated, while old England's becoming new, new England is becoming old. And the same old horrible persecution has been woefully transplanted into the infant colonies in America. It's a terrible thing. Roger Williams, as I mentioned, wrote Bloody Tenant of Persecution, documenting over and over and over all these unlawful persecutions of people who just wanted to worship God the way they saw it in the Bible. Well, he was attacked and they tried to refute it, to which he responded by writing a second edition called Bloody Tenant of Persecution, More Bloody Still, wherein he documented yet more uh, instances of persecution that were unlawful and ungodly as well. Now, the colonial charter. Where on earth did John Clark go that Obadiah Holmes needed to take the pulpit? Well, upon the sponsorship of Rhode Islanders, Clark and Williams sailed to England. The idea was this. We're never going to be able to have liberty in the Massachusetts Bay. 
What we need to do is to have a brand new colony, but not a colony founded on the old state church arrangement theocracy of Old Testament theology, but a New Testament uh, Baptist type colony where everyone has liberty of conscience and can worship God or choose not to worship God if they so choose to do. And so they sailed. And Roger Williams was there less than a year. Clark, however, stayed year after year until over a dozen years had transpired in England. What was Clark doing over in England? Well, Williams returned, but Clark stayed. He authored at least 10 petitions to the king and wrote and rewrote, and may I add, rewrote and rewrote and edited and rewrote uh, this, this document, this charter, this brand new constitution, as it were, for a brand new colony for the island of Rhodes. He carried this burden to the English crown until Charles II, who was slaughtering Baptists and quartering them over the city gates, by the way, for some strange reason. I think I got a few uh, theories on that, amen. As he's persecuting Baptists, he gives and grants this man this new constitution, the Royal Rhode Island Charter of 1663. Now, boom! Really that big? Bigger than you could ever imagine. What, what happened here? Well, there's a depiction of him receiving it. This is actually a document that is about three foot wide and it is about six foot long. And you'll notice the king back there with his little dog Fifi on his lap. And uh, there's Clark and some of his preacher friends. And uh, he brings this document back. And this is authorization with the king's insignia to start a brand new colony under the authority of England. But Clark persuades him, this has to be different than all the other colonies. Uh, even later, Pennsylvania, it's going to be much greater than even the Quaker state and all of their liberty. This is going to be a brand new colony where we're going to have this experiment. You ever hear the left or the right use these words? This government of experiment or this experiment, experimental government? They have no idea where it even came from. It was the brainstorm of a Baptist preacher who took it from the ancient doctrine of liberty of conscience that had ever been held by the Baptists through the dungeons and caves all the way back to John's beheading. He listened to me, and uh, and he, he said, we're going to have a lively experiment, to hold forth a lively experiment, that a most flourishing civil state may stand and best be maintained in perpetuity with full liberty in religious conservatives. It's going to be a lively experiment. Okay? So... The charter comes back. By the way, the charter, about two years ago, it had been stretching for about 400 years, okay? Uh, or whatever it was, 300 and however many years. And, and two, three years ago, I think it may have been, uh, they took it and this is now preserved. It was in a climate-controlled, fireproof safe, but it was actually stretching because of the weight, because of the size of it. And now it's preserved like uh, the Declaration it's preserved like the Constitution and the Bill of Rights exactly the same, okay? So they cut it actually in three pieces. It's Old English, large block letter, very difficult to read. I've tried on several occasions to read sections. You get about a half a sentence and you got to skip a couple lines and pick up another half a sentence. One thing that's easy to read in it is the words of Clark that this is a lively experiment. We can have the best society in the world if we have liberty for everybody, okay? Now, let me tell you this. You don't think this is a big deal? How about this? This place, Rhode Island, on a platform of complete liberty. It became the freest city-state in the history of the world. Not a stretch. Search the history books. 
uh, searched the library, searched the archives. There had never existed a place with this degree of liberty for every citizen, no class warfare, uh, no feudal system, uh, no state church arrangement. This is going to be a platform of unfeigned liberty for everybody. By the way, backing up to this, if you don't think this is a big deal, I hate to even mention this name. I've already mentioned Mr. Biden a few times. But Justice Elena Kagan, you know what I'm talking about? One of our Supreme Court justices put in by Obama. So she was there a couple years ago upon, it may have been three years ago now, upon the celebration of the, uh, the anniversary of this document. She stood right there in front of the, where you can see right there, right on that carpet there, where I've lectured numerous times, and she said this. Now, like her politics or not, which I absolutely despise them, and most of what she believes and stands for, I hate it, but know this, she has more degrees than a thermometer. She's worldly-wise. She's very much scholarly, okay? She's probably forgotten more book-wise than I'll ever know. And, and I'm not trying to puff her up. Again, principally, wicked as the day is long. But she said in her education and scholarship, Sirs, you're looking at the most important document in world history. And from her scholarly perspective, she was fairly close. Now, I will have to argue that this is the most important document in world history. However, I would certainly agree this is most likely the second most important document in world history. Wait, wait, what about our Constitution? Uh, you mean the one that had to be amended over and over and over and over and over and over and over? I think you got the point. Amen? No, no, no. I I'm sorry. This is the principal uh, fountainhead from which all those documents are going to flow. As we will progress this week, you will see that very clearly. This is going to be the cookie cutter. This was familiar to Jefferson. Uh, this was very well known by Madison. And these are the principles which would end up in our founding documents. Now, what about this Jefferson and he's just as good as Washington, all this stuff? If you're going to praise Madison and Jefferson, and even Mason and others, who took these principles and entrenched them in immortality in what we call our founding documents. Don't you think you ought to thank the guy that actually brought the principles here for them to have them? Don't you think you ought to at least know the guy's name that sailed liberty across the ocean and entrenched it into the Rhode Island colony and then Rhode Island becomes the cookie cutter for the United States? Don't believe me? You really think the United States is modeled after Virginia? Anglican state churchism? You're crazy. You think it's modeled after, and Virginia, man, that's, that's like the mother colony, man. I mean, after a while, it took on that flavor. All the presidents and, and all the legislators and all the documents, all this stuff flows out of Virginia. And yet America was not, was not patterned after old Virginia. It was not patterned after Massachusetts, nor North Carolina. Anglican State Church was a province of England with a wicked, ungodly governor later. And by the way, this place would be pure Anglican Church right down here. Uh, South Carolina, Anglican State Churchism. Georgia, Anglican State Churchism. Though America was founded upon the foundation that wrote was borrowed from Rhode Island. Had there been no Rhode Island, had there been no document here, had there been no Portsmouth Compact, I don't know that we have founding documents because the greatest principles which they hold come straight back through this. And I can trace them much further than this and have already. But this is where they came across the ocean. And came. Now, I thought about, the, I thought, I thought, you know, Knox and I thought, you know, this philosopher and that great philosopher brought all these. Well, I would, I would, I would uh, defend this to the, to the hilt and argue with you and debate you on this subject. 
the principles in our founding documents come from this. Now, I've got to get moving. I'm going to be here forever. Everybody's growing a beard already. Amen. Don't look at the clock. This, by the way, ask you a question. Here go rabbit number 16. Amen. When it was time to ratify, you realize that there were a lot of holdout colonies. Okay. Virginia teetered. We'll, we'll get into Virginia very much in depth in reference to that big struggle right there as to ratification and delegates for ratification. However, Rhode Island, mark it down, they were drug in against their better judgment, kicking and screaming. Why? Why Rhode Island out of everybody? Because they already had more liberty than everybody else. Why on earth would they give all that up, uh, which took, you know, centuries and millennium for, the, for them to gain, only now to say, wait a minute, now we're going to have to have power centralized in, in, an, in an ultimate authority, a, 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 a federal government? They despise that. They hate it. Which, by the way, that was the compromise to have the United States. You do understand that. We'll talk about that whole struggle. And that's where James Madison becomes a little bit conniving. Amen. Uh, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. Amen. But no, this is where liberty came from in the beginning of America. Now, I'm not trying to be mean. I don't see where John Clark ever pastored the Church of God or a Pentecostal church. I'm just trying to tell you. I'm not proud to be a Baptist, but I'm going to tell you the honest truth. These are Baptist principles. Not only is America founded on Judeo-Christian principles, let's get technical. These were Baptist principles. These are the ones fought for by scriptural Baptist churches all the way down through the ages. Hope we get to get into some ancient history, and I'll show you that as well. This was consulted by Jefferson, familiar to Madison, influential in the founding national documents, made Rhode Island the model for the whole of America to be founded on a platform of liberty. Now, carved into the marble of the south entrance of the Providence State House, which is the fourth largest freestanding rotunda in the world, uh, made by thousands of tons of white Georgia marble and uh, rivaled only by the Taj Mahal, the Minneapolis, mini, uh, yeah, Minneapolis, Minnesota State House, and, help me, St. Peter's Basilica. Amen? This is the fourth biggest one. Why does that matter? Because it's neat to go to if this wasn't there. It's an awesome building. These are the words. To hold forth a lively experiment. That's where those words come from. From the Baptist preacher's brain. From his heart. That a most flourishing civil state. You want to have a civil state that flourishes? That can stand and best in perpetuity be maintained? He says it's with full liberty and religious concerns. We're going to have an experiment. Here's what we're going to see. We're going to start a colony with complete liberty of conscience for everybody. We'll see if it works. Because the, the argument was that you can, that'll never work. That's why they have state churches, because people just get wicked, and, and, and it worked. Worked for a long time. We're coming on hard times, I'm going to tell you, friend, it worked. In fact, it worked so good, America said, yeah, it worked. By the way, the experiment's over. That's why we, that's why I use the word experiment, because the experiment in, in, in the, in the test tube in the laboratory, it's over, and America said, man, you passed the test, we'll use that same model. We'll reject all other models of all the other colonies. These previous principles of what Clark called a lively experiment. These have been often quoted as a description of the experimental form of government formed by Clark. There is the capital in Providence, Rhode Island. And there are the words of the Baptist preacher. When you ingrain them in marble, you don't want to take them out quick. Yes, these were John Clark the Baptist preacher's words. Now let me just stop right here and ask this. Don't you think it's pretty sad that nobody knows this? 
I've been talking about this stuff for 15 years, and I still go into churches and I'm meeting people all the time and say, I never heard anything. I'm not mad at you. I'm thankful that finally, because our generation is completely ignorant to our principles, where they came from, how to think. Uh, much I could say, though. Let me move on. John Clark, the venerable Dr. John Clark, died April 20th, 1676. You can go to Rhode Island and see these things. Enjoy them firsthand. They're awesome. Big monument put up at the Baptist History Preservation Society about John Clark's life. There's a John Clark Cemetery right near that marker. Memorial stones, gravesides. Wilbur Nelson, writing in the preface of the Hero of Aquidneck, said this of Clark, The magnitude of his life and labors has never been fully appreciated. Nelson went on to say, Dr. John Clark of Newport was one of the most eminent men of the 17th century. No name in the annals of American history is more important than his. No character deserving of more lasting honor. Now you got an idea why the devil hides this, right? Because he doesn't want Baptists to think that God ever used us. And I'm here to tell you, the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ have accomplished the greatest good in just about every realm imaginable from the very beginning. But the devil doesn't want, he wants to think we're just abject failures. Now watch this. He said, the, uh, he went on to say this, as a Christian gentleman, pure-minded, unselfish, modest, and sincere, he represents the noblest type of American manhood. As a scholar, physician, and, and a Christian minister, he takes high rank. As a statesman laboring to establish a commonwealth of the principle of full liberty and religious concernments, he has been properly called the foremost American diplomat of his age. Loved and admired by his fellow citizens, he was the hero of Aquidneck. May our children now appreciate this man at an age much earlier than we have. So I submit for your consideration tonight the venerable Dr. John Clark.